Hey, it's Stephen Henderson today on the podcast. We're going to talk about homelessness as the temperatures drop and the wind rises outside. A lot of us aren't thinking about housing instability and how it affects people in our community. We're going to hear from someone who found herself homeless after her husband died in 2022. We'll talk with a reporter who told her story in the Detroit Free Press and at Bridge Detroit. And then we're going to talk with a professor about how homelessness looks, not just here in Southeast Michigan, but all around the country and why, in many cases, it's getting worse. Right now, we want to really train the lens on homelessness here in the city. What does it look like? What does it feel like? How does it play out? And to do that, we have two really great guests with us. Mishra Rahman is an economic mobility reporter for the Detroit Free Press. She wrote about homelessness in an article for the Free Press and for Bridge Detroit in the fall. Mishrat, welcome back to Detroit Today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Also with us is Tanya Hogan. Now, Tanya is someone who fell into homelessness after losing her husband to COVID-19 in 2022. She now lives in an apartment in Melvindale, but the story of how she became unhoused and how she found housing in the nearer future, is a really great example of what people struggle with in our community. Tanya, it's really great to have you here. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So, Tanya, I do want to start with you, uh, and I want to have you tell our listeners about your experience, because I think, as I said, not a lot of people know about homelessness. We don't know people who struggle with housing stability. We don't encounter that in our lives. So talk about how you fell into homelessness. How did you go from having a place to live to not having one? Well, um, in 2021, um, my husband and I, by the end of December, we did not know um, that we had caught COVID. It was more of just a regular cold. And um, unfortunately, with the underlying health issues uh, with my husband, uh, Danny, he caught COVID. um, And just like that one day, we're fine. And we're working, and then the next day, um, he couldn't get out of bed, and um, he was rushed to the hospital, and he was only there for a day and a half when, um, unfortunately, um, he had complications and passed away. Mm. And with him passing away, um, he had a plumbing and heating business, and so with him um, passing away, we ended up losing, I ended up losing the um, income that was coming in. And that's how I ended up um, with homelessness. I had no income. I had no way of keeping the house that we were in. Um, so I was forced into homelessness yeah. at that point. Yeah. So 
talk to us about the daily struggles of not having a home. What was that like? Uh, what kinds of things did you find yourself having to do just to survive? Um, it was really hard. You know, um, I never thought that I would be uh, in a situation where I did not have um, a steady home. Um, so it was really hard trying to deal with um, losing a husband and moving at the same time and not knowing where I was going. And um, it became very hard, you know. Um, you're kind of in this motion where you know things need to happen, but you're uncertain. Your your next day is uncertain. Talk about how you found housing eventually, and what kinds of things led you to it. I mean, I th- one of the things I think is really interesting about your story is that it, it gets at this idea of kinds of uh, the, the transitory nature of housing and housing stability, that people uh, who have stable housing often find themselves without it and then sometimes uh, get back to a place where uh, they have stable housing. How did that? How did that look for you? Um, well, uh, the first thing was trying to find um, a homeless shelter that will accept me. At the time, I have a had a service dog, hmm. and so um, it's not as easy as people think. That oh, I can walk into a homeless shelter and I'm accepted and I'll have a bed. Um, unfortunately, you have to go through uh, CAM, which is a community network uh, for housing. And what they do is uh, communicate with different shelters to see who has room for you. Um, and then that's when you um, go into uh, and accept it into a shelter. Um, from that point, um, once uh, that shelter accepts you, um, then you have to have, have to have a caseworker, and then that caseworker um, gets all of your information, and then you're put on a waiting list. And um, that waiting list, uh, people think, oh, within three months I'm going to have housing. It's not that easy. It's not that simple. There's a process. Um, and it was very frustrating to go through that um, process because, again, I never knew anything about homelessness. Mm-hmm. I never didn't know um, who to contact or what steps I needed to do, um, how to get housing, how do I get myself out of this. Um, but I was fortunate um, to have other women there that had uh, been through the process before, and so they gave me uh, information. And not only that, I did my own research and started contacting different uh, agencies and different places to find out what I need to do on my end mm. um, to find housing. And so um, being in the shelter they put you on a Section 8 list for housing. Um, it's not guaranteed that you will receive it. And 
the scary thing was you you don't know how long the wait is going to be. And like I said, people come have that misconception that once I get into the shelter and get into the system, I'm going to find housing within three months, six months. No, you don't know. There were women there that um, had been in the shelter for two to three years wow. waiting to get housing. Um, I was um, fortunate to um, even get it within a year, you know. Wow. Um, I was there for a year and three months, something like that. So, um, yeah, you uh, you never know um, what your next day is going to look like, and you don't know... Um, if that moment will come, it was very heartening, you know, when, um, for instance, for me to be in a place where I really didn't grieve. So I'm here in a shelter. I'm grieving. I'm not knowing, um, what my next day is going to look like. I don't know where I'm going to go. I have no income. And, um, I'm basically, you know, struggling to survive um, yes. in that moment. So, so I, I want to talk about what your life looks like now and how much different uh, housing stability is for you now and whether you still wonder or worry that uh, what happened before could happen again. In other words, um, could something else happen to you that would cause you to lose your home again? Um, yes. Um, right now, I'm working through, I have my housing voucher through uh, RPI management, and um, I just sent in paperwork um to see if I can renew my voucher. And so, yes, I had the um, Section 8 voucher for a year. I have a nice one-bedroom apartment. I'm doing um, well. I still have my struggles because, um, like I said, I still um, don't have the income, a stable income. Um, So looking into this new year, you're, you know, you're still, I'm still left with doubt or what's going to be the next step. Will that voucher renew um, to help me stay here for another year? And um, like I said, um, just trying to survive that, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, um, it's a lot when, um, it's a lot to take in. If your voucher is not renewed, what would that mean? What, what, what would happen for you? Then I will end up back in a homeless shelter. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Tanya, it was really great to have you here to tell that story, uh, and, and hopefully our listeners have gotten a little more insight into what it looks like and feels like uh, to face housing instability. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Mishrat, I want to start uh, with you in, in this segment. We just heard Tanya's story uh, about her losing her husband, losing his business, and therefore losing stable housing. Um, homelessness is not the same problem here as it is in places like New York or Los Angeles, but it is a huge problem, and it's not just about homelessness. It is about housing instability, the precarious nature that many people face when it comes to being housed. They may have stable housing today, next month, in three months, in six months, they might not. Right, and I think one of the things that you mentioned that really stood out is that housing or housing instability and homelessness doesn't necessarily look the same in Detroit as it does in other cities. Um, you know, we may not see, you know, tents like we do in California or even in New York. But the thing that it's it's important to remember is that just because we don't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And that's something that a lot of housing experts said. Um, in Detroit, what we see is that a lot of families may be couch surfing. Uh, young people might be couch surfing. That's considered homelessness. That's considered housing instability. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of vacant homes in the city. A lot of folks might be staying in those homes. And so the thing is that Detroit is big, right? We have many vacant homes. Um, we have a lot of people living with other families. And so the, how, the definition of homelessness that I've learned throughout this reporting is that it's not a monolith. It's not always what we think it is. We have to kind of expand our definition of what we think housing instability and homelessness looks like. Yes, yes. Uh, so in Tanya's story, I mean, there is this question of the instability up front that forces her into homelessness. But then there's this long period of not having stable housing and living in a shelter. Can you talk about some of the gaps uh, that exist in the supports that people need when they lose housing to be able to get to something else? She was in a shelter for more than a year. That's an awful long time. She talked about people who were in the shelter with her who had been there even longer. What's going on that causes uh, that kind of delay in getting someone back into a permanent or at least stable housing? I think the best way to explain that is how we met Tanya. And I say we, uh, my former Free Press uh, colleague, S.B. Maney, we kind of worked hand in hand on this story. Um, we came across Tanya because we were doing a story about housing choice vouchers, which are the federal subsidy that helps Uh, folks afford rent. Um, We were doing a story on that and just the long wait list for it. And we came across Tanya. She was someone who was experiencing that long wait list as we read throughout the story. I think that's the crux of the issue. Uh, The Federal Housing Choice Voucher is what experts say is an amazing tool that can help families afford rent if they're not able to. But the issue is that in Michigan, for example, the average wait time that you're on a waiting list for it is two years, right? You have people who are on it for months if you're in the shelter, but staying in a shelter even for a few months is is really difficult. That is really the issue at hand is the long time it takes between you applying for a voucher and you getting it. Okay, you have it in hand, but then you have to find a home that a um, a landlord that's willing to rent out to you with a Section 8 voucher. You know, it's called section, it used to be called Section 8 voucher. It's a mm-hmm. federal housing subsidy. You need to find a, a landlord who's willing to rent to you. There are very strict rules. So the house needs to be under good conditions and just the ability to maintain, you know, if there's a portion that you have to pay. And so there are a bunch of like balls you have to juggle at the same time. Things need to fall in place in order for you to have that housing instability or that stability. Uh, can we talk a little about 
uh, how this fits into the into the picture of affordable housing in the city and in the suburbs. Uh, I think it's really notable, for instance, that Tanya finds housing in Melvindale, not in the city of Detroit. Um, uh, it, we have this debate all the time. Is there enough affordable housing in Detroit? How do we get more? Uh, the mayor, it seems, every few months now is standing in front of uh, of a development that uh, they say is going to be for affordable housing, emphasizing the idea that we need more of it. But yet it takes somebody a year, uh, more than that, to find some place to live if they're if they're homeless. What what explains that disconnect? There's multiple factors that can explain it, but really it's an issue of demand, you know, that's one of the, the points that housing experts have mentioned. There's just such a high demand for affordable housing, especially during and, you know, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. We had, of course, the eviction moratorium for a few years, and then that waned. Um, we had a lot of economic supports that waned, but people are still financially struggling. You know, inflation is a thing. A lot of families are struggling. Wages haven't necessarily increased for many folks. And so you have a combination of these economic factors and then coming out of the safety net of the pandemic, it's creating kind of this perfect storm for a lot of families. On top of that, there isn't enough affordable housing. You know, city officials will say that, like there is not enough affordable housing in the city and even in Metro Detroit, even in Michigan, to be able to support the number of people that need it. And the thing is, it's like, and it's like an economic issue, right? Like you need developers who who have the subsidies, who have the supports to be the incentives to be able to create affordable housing. And it takes a while to create that affordable housing and stand it up. And so you have the micro issue of the personal factors that people are dealing with. And then on the other end, the developers who need to be able to kind of make ends meet themselves in order to create that affordable housing and keep it affordable too. That's the other thing, because mm-hmm. a lot of the times affordable housing may not last right um and so there it's like a perfect storm like i said but you know affordable housing is definitely a huge issue there's a definite lack of it um i believe the numbers are something like a hundred thousand there's a shortage of a hundred thousand affordable you know units in the state wow wow uh so tanya hogan um you are waiting to find out whether uh, you will keep the housing uh, uh, that you have, the affordable housing uh, that you have. I, I, I wonder if you can talk just a bit about the relationship you have with uh, the landlord who owns the housing that you have and, and whether that's working out in a way that, uh, that, that is favorable to you and, and kind of leans, I guess, toward this idea of long-term uh, housing stability. Um, yes, this, um, my landlord, um, I have a great relationship with her. Um, anything that uh, I needed, um, she was there. She made the home feel welcoming. She, you know, put decorations into the house when I got here. So she made me feel welcome. And um, the apartment that I'm in, they normally do not have uh, a, a pets, um, but because I have a service uh, dog, um, she was welcoming with that. She met Pepper, and um, she was like, "Oh yeah, she won't be no problem." And so, um, I like I said, I really like where I'm at. It's quiet. Mm. Um, I'm everything is in walking distance. 
I have a, a park across from me where I can let Pepper run around. Um, so I love where I'm at. Um, but the thing is, is once again, um, I'm facing the uncertainty. Uh, will um, my voucher continue? Because there's so many people um, who are on the waiting list. And, you know, will the funds be there um, for me to continue to, to live here and keep my voucher? Right. And that's the, the misconception that, oh, yeah, I have my voucher. And, yes, I have my lease for a year. But when that lease is up and that voucher expires, now what am I going to do? Right. And there are programs out there um, that can help with uh, rent, but they only help um, in certain situations or they only help for maybe the first month or they may help you pay a deposit somewhere else in your first month's rent. But where do I go from there? And so... Um, although I'm no longer living in a shelter and um, it's almost a year that I will be here in my apartment, um, there's still that that big question mark over my head of can I breathe easy knowing that I will continue to be able to keep my apartment. Just stay where because, you are. Yeah. Right, because not having um, stable income I already lost so much um, when I had to leave the house. I left so much in the house. Uh, we had did, uh, Danny and I, we had put so much into the house because we were looking to purchase the house mm. because the owner was selling it. And so he literally had signed um, a land contract for us to buy the house. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. And so and you, just um, had to walk, you just had to walk away from that? I had to walk away. Yeah. We had put so much into the house and fixing it up. And even though we were renting at the time, um, we loved it. And, you know, by him being a handyman, he, you know, he was like, hey, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And, you know, to make it comfortable for us. But when the opportunity came for us to be able to purchase the house, we went all in, you yeah. know, yeah. and um, to have to walk away from that and then having Everything in storage, and I had two storage units, and not having the income, guess what? You lost. I pretty much lost everything. I mm. had to downsize and leave everything else behind. So I lost um, my father's military flag when he passed away. I lost mm. his medals. I lost my great uncle's flag and medals. Um, there's so much uh, that I lost in um, this journey. And so now having to renew my voucher and renew my lease, um, which I know my, my, uh, landlord, she wouldn't have no problem with me staying here for another year because right. I help around but here. It's about keep, the voucher. Yeah. yeah. It's about the voucher. And so if that voucher is denied, now I'm facing, where do I put my belongings? I have to move again. That's money. Wow. Wow. That's wow. a lot of money, yeah. you know, and um, I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable situation. And it's it's the kind of thing that, uh, again, I think a lot of people don't quite understand about housing instability and the people who who face it. Uh, Nushrat, I, I want to have you come back to something that Tanya mentioned, 
which is this this question about the voucher and whether it renews. Uh, what what determines that for people who are using these vouchers to live in the only place that they can? Uh, why why is that a question? That's a that's a valid question that a lot of folks might have, um, and it really is dependent on the agency that you're working on or that you're working with. So, for example, in in Michigan, I believe there's at least 65 different agencies that work with the Housing and Urban Development HUD, um, the federal agency that deals with housing. Um, you kind of have to maneuver with them to figure out when your voucher is valid, um, wh- how you can use it, um, where you can use it when it renews. Um, for the story that we did about federal housing vouchers, we actually went to one of the first orientations with, with several folks who were getting their vouchers. And, you know, it's incredibly complicated. Um, you know, to their credit, I think the agency was, um, you know, doing a good job explaining it, but there are so many rules. Uh, and each person left with this thick packet of different rules that they had to kind of keep in mind. And so, so really, it's dependent on the agency that you're working with um, and, and them kind of letting you know what the rules are and what the regulations are, when it renews, when it doesn't renew. Yeah. So I also want to talk about uh, jobs and income. And Nishrat, you cover economic mobility here uh, in, in Detroit. And th- th- that seems to be to me to be a big part of this. Right. So Tanya's husband dies. That uh, takes the income in the household away, and so she falls into homelessness. But even now, as she's saying, income is is difficult and and a problem. Uh, how how does that I guess fit into this picture of housing stability? And are there enough efforts focused on making sure that uh, folks have access to jobs, uh, jobs that will f- that will pay them enough? to rent uh, stable uh, housing and and to to maintain that housing. One of the interesting things that, you know, we talk about in the story is the emergency savings that people have. And so, you know, there was a report that came out from city council and it pointed out that many Detroit families cannot afford or could not withstand a $400 emergency. Um, That's pretty startling because any emergency can be at least four hundred dollars, mm-hmm. um, and so I think Tanya's story is kind of an example of that. And we talked about that at length throughout this uh, reporting. Is is how it's it's kind of like a domino effect. One thing, if you don't have that financial cushion, one it could it could be that one thing that can set off the domino effect that can lead to homelessness, right? Um, and how many families do not have that safety that safety net? Um, and there are different scenarios, right? Like I think the shelter that Tanya was staying at, there are a lot of like families, right? Like women and children who are living yeah. in, in those in those shelters and you have to also think about daycare right like a lot of women um they have children right like how are you going to work and you have to be able to afford daycare like what are the options for affordable daycare um so it's kind of like okay you get a job but you have a child that you have to put in daycare but then you you know like you can't find that daycare you can't afford that daycare and so it's just this vicious cycle that a lot of families um are dealing with and another statistic that we kind of talk about in this story is, you know, 65% of Detroit households can't afford to keep up with the basics, right? So that's including rent, child care, food. Um, 65%. Yes, 65% um, health care utilities. Um, that's according to the United Way. And so that's just a startling statistic on top of the other ones we already talked about. Um, but that's kind of the landscape that we're looking at right now. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, uh, Nushrat Rachman and Tanya Hogan, it was really great to have both of you here to talk about Tanya's story and how it fits into the larger context of housing instability in Detroit. And of course, Tanya, we all hope that uh, your housing voucher renews and that you're able to stay in the, the place that you have uh, found. We really do want that to turn yeah, out. Thank right you. Thank, yeah. you. Yeah. thank Thanks you. Thank you so for much. Being here. Okay. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. the conversation out a little more here on Detroit Today and talk about why so many cities across the U.S. struggle to solve homelessness. How, why do people uh, find themselves unhoused in the richest nation in the world? And what are some of the solutions we should be thinking about to discuss this? We've got Greg Colburn here. He is an associate professor of real estate in the College of Built Environments at the University of Washington, and he co-wrote a book called Homelessness is a Housing Problem, How Structural Factors Explain U.S. Patterns. Uh, Professor Colburn, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Nice to be here. So I want to start with this. You and your co-author argue that homelessness is a housing problem. Talk about what you mean when you say that. Yeah, the motivation for writing this book, uh, you know, I live in Seattle, uh, which has a terrible, terrible problem with uh, with a housing crisis and homelessness. And that's really true up and down the West Coast. And my observation when I moved to Seattle back in 2017 was that we as a community didn't really understand what was uh, driving this crisis. And so if you were to read the Seattle Times every day, you would you would see stories about drug use and, and mental illness and, and, and these other factors. And the academic literature is fairly clear that at least at a community level, a lack of access to affordable housing is the primary driver of, of homelessness. And so the purpose of the book was to really explain why some places in the United States have really high rates of homelessness and others don't. And, and to you know cut to the punchline, it's, it's really the, the cost of housing and the accessibility of housing that really um, drives those numbers. Um, so a lot of people would say that housing is uh, and homelessness are about other things, drug addiction, mental health, job discrimination. Why is it not those other things? Why do you think homelessness really is just about housing? Well, and I, I would never say it's only about housing. What I would say is that some of these individual factors certainly help to identify who is more likely to experience homelessness. And so, for example, if you are poor, you're more likely to experience homelessness than someone with a lot of resources. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, using your city as an example, um, Detroit, at least um, through our data in 2019, had the highest poverty rate in the United States, but had much lower rates of homelessness than a place like Seattle, which has very, very high incomes. And the difference between Detroit and Seattle was that Seattle's housing was just not very accessible at all and very expensive, whereas Detroit housing historically has been uh, more accessible. Now that's changed in the last three years. I just pulled up your data and, and things are getting tighter in Detroit. And I think the story that you shared at the beginning of this hour highlights that. Um, and so that's really the point. And, and so there are people experiencing poverty. There are people who are addicted. There are people experiencing mental illness in every jurisdiction in the United States. The difference is, is the context in which those things happen, and that's the housing market. And so we would never argue that that poverty and, and drug use don't matter. 
but we would argue that that making sure that people have access to housing is the primary way that we can uh, limit uh, levels of homelessness. So, so the 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 change that you're talking about in the market, or at least altering the market, how does that how does that happen? Uh, first, in cities like Seattle, which again is really different from from Detroit in terms of housing competition, but 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 anywhere. Um, I mean, we live in a society that that says uh, if you buy a home, uh, you're supposed to uh, gain from uh, from the ownership of that home, right? It's supposed to be worth more when you sell it than it was when you buy it. That, of course, leads to uh, you know escalating prices and scarcity. Uh, how do you counter that in a way that accounts for people? Who aren't owners and and maybe never will be, uh, but will always require stable housing. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think you highlight one of the fundamental contradictions in how the United States have approached housing. You know, really over the last couple hundred years, which is we've really had two goals. One is we want people to buy homes and to profit from that, and second, we want to have affordable housing which are really two diametrically opposed goals. Mm -hmm. And so I describe it to my students as having, you know, one foot in two different canoes, and that usually doesn't work real well. You're gonna fall. And so I think that's kind of what ha what has happened with the United States is that we have promoted home ownership through the tax system. We have um, benefited middle and upper, upper income households through the mortgage interest tax deduction. And that has been really good if you happen to be, you know, fortunate enough to own a home. What we've not done is provided support for uh, low income uh, many times renters. And so, you know, when you know your previous guest was talking about the voucher system, only one in four or one in five people who are eligible for housing support get it in the United States. And so those remaining people are left to fend for themselves in the private market, in a mm -hmm. private market that is not very accommodating. And so, you know, the the, the obvious then follow-up question is so so what do we do? Um, one is we need to make sure we have adequate housing, and some of that is going to need to be built by private developers because that's primarily how we build housing in the United States. More building is better, but that alone will not solve the affordability crisis. And therefore, we do need to look to Washington, D.C., and we need to look to states and cities to ensure that there are more supports for people who are working but can't afford uh, market rate housing. And that's unfortunately something uh, as a nation we have not been willing to do. And we are, you know, seeing the consequences of that through Tanya's story and, and you know, hundreds of thousands of other people like that in the United States. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Mark in Redford. Mark, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey. Good morning. Thank yeah. you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I, I this is such an interesting conversation, and I think you um, you touched on it with Nishrab about it being a, a demand problem on, on affordable housing. But um, I, I'm a real estate agent nearby, and there is definitely there are supply and demand issues on both sides of this. Um, like I, I don't think a lot of people know that the most competitive market that I go into is not they're not the higher price markets. It's the eighty to one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in Detroit oh, market really? that where I get the highest volume of offers involved, where we have to go see the most houses, where we are at the most competition. Um, and I think it's a um, it's a multifaceted problem because there are people who need houses who are willing to do whatever they have to do in order to <coughs> secure a home which gives them a lot of reason to, to overspend in certain circumstances. But you also have landlords who are looking for a unit around $100,000 that they can then turn around and rent to someone. And so there are financial opportunities involved in real estate that run counter to the inherent supply problem. There just aren't enough houses. Um, and the one other thing I would like to add is 
let's say you go and buy a $100,000 house mm-hmm. in Detroit mm-hmm. that was built in 1920. You know, you've got galvanized pipes that are rotting out. You have mm-hmm. issues with plaster that's difficult to work in. You know, the, the physical, the money that's involved in physically maintaining that thing is significant. Yes. So even if you get a relatively cheap house, when you go to put a roof on a complicated structure, you have to pay a lot of money to do that. And I just think a lot of those details get washed out in the conversation. Yeah. Mark, I really appreciate the call and that uh, info. And as a serial buyer of old homes, I can absolutely co-sign <laughs> what you said about the cost, the cost after purchase uh, in homes like that. It sometimes uh, can eclipse what you uh, spend up front uh, on, on the house. Uh, Greg Holbern, I'll give you a chance to respond to the things that Mark is talking about in, in our market here in Southeast Michigan. Well, I think it's it's not just in 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 Detroit and it's in its suburbs it's all around the country that this is both a supply and demand uh, issue. And mm-hmm. as we highlight in our book, um, the places that are having a really difficult time are coastal cities where you've had big population growth and where they have not built sufficient housing because they have housing that we would call inelastic to use an economic term, meaning prices go up and you don't build enough housing. Right. So the perfect storm for housing crisis is a whole bunch of people move to a community and you, and you don't build enough. What's a little scary is I've been traveling around the country uh, on, a, on a book tour and I pull up the, the local housing market characteristics everywhere I go and what I'm seeing is vacancy rates falling dramatically. I actually just pulled up to Detroit's and you were at 10.5% a decade ago, it's now 3.7%, which wow. is a dangerously low vacancy rate. And that's true in Indiana, and it's true in Kentucky, and it's true in Kansas, other places that I've visited. And so this housing crisis, this shortage that your caller just talked about is no longer just a Seattle, Boston, New York, LA story. It's a Detroit, it's a Wichita, it's an Indianapolis story. And, and that's a big problem. And I think that's why we're seeing the federal government spending a lot more time on this issue, because uh, it is is creeping into the, the middle of the country as well. And that has to do with demand, growing demand, correct? That's why the vacancy rate is so low? Well, it's it's both. It's it's increased demand for rental housing and then not sufficient units. And so if you don't have enough units and more people want them, that vacancy rate is going to fall. And when vacancy rates fall, prices go up. Yeah. And that exerts huge pressure on, on low-income households, which is why we start to see this growing crisis of homelessness. Yeah. yeah. Uh, again, Mark, really appreciate the call. Uh, and the information there. Uh, let's go to Kim in Ypsilanti. Kim, welcome to the show. Hi. Yes, I'm calling. Um, I agree with everything that's being said. Um, I was facing homelessness. Um, I'm seeing mother of three, hmm. and I did end up in a homeless shelter. I was there for the amount of time they let us let us there. Um, and when I was looking for housing, uh, I had to go to a private landlord. Um, because I had a balance from uh, my past rental company. Mm. Um, it was an eviction, just a balance I owed the company that I hadn't taken care of yet. Um, so looking at private landlords, a lot of them wouldn't take me or give me an opportunity because I did not have a Section 8 voucher or any voucher of any kind. And the rent in my area was so high for for homes that would fit my family. Yeah. So I felt like a lot of the landlords were up in the price in a demand for these vouchers, and then there was no space for a single mother like me who was just working. Yeah, wow. Uh, Kim, that's that's an awful story. I, I, I want to go back, though, and talk about why you couldn't get a Section 8 voucher uh, because you owed money to a previous landlord. Is I, I guess I, don't, I didn't know that was part of the way it worked. Yeah, yeah. So um, I had rented with 
uh, a large large rental company that's in this area. Um, and uh, when I moved out the last month, I had got pregnant, and I worked in like in a management position, so I couldn't take on another job at that time. So I moved out at the end of my lease and owed them a little bit money towards that last month of rent. Hmm. And so no big rental company would take me. So I went to private landlords and the market was so high. And now all they asked, are you getting a voucher? And then the, the shelter I was in, they just didn't give it to me because I was, I was working. I was, yeah. I was, I had an income and, um, when I have a career, I just had fell on bad times and I thought I would get a little more support there. Um, it wasn't as bad that I didn't get the money or the voucher. It was just that they couldn't help me find a landlord that would take me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kim, I, I'm really sorry about that situation, but glad you called to to share it with our listeners. Uh, Greg Colburn, it strikes me that we do have these gaps uh, that exist in the system that punish, uh, you know, people who are trying to do better and do the right thing and, and just keep their families uh, uh, housed. Uh, and in some cases it is about policy but but it is mostly about poverty it is about people who uh, fall behind and can't catch up no question i mean it, you know i talk about this all the time the sense that housing affordability is a function of of two factors one is income and one is housing costs and and um, therefore, as, as a nation and as, as both a public and private sector, we need to ensure that, that incomes for uh, low-income folks are, are higher. Uh, we've got huge income inequality in the United States. And on the other side, we need to make sure that we're building sufficient housing uh, so that we don't have really tight vacancy rates and high rents. Uh, and, and to me, we need to be working on both ends to ensure that, that people can, can access and, and sustain uh, housing. Yeah. You know, focusing on just one side or the other is probably not enough. And so there's a lot of work to be done, unfortunately. And I think the calls that you've gotten today certainly highlight that. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Kim, uh, good luck to you with uh, solving all of those those issues. And I really appreciate you calling to participate. Uh, let's go next to Rob in Pontiac. Rob, I've got about a minute left, but uh, want to get you, you in here. You got it. You got it, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my name is Rob Boyle. I run the Furniture Bank of Southeastern Michigan. We provide beds and furniture for folks coming out of shelters mm-hmm. and into housing because, you know, they, they get out of a shelter and they realize once they get in a place, if they don't have a bed for themselves or their child to sleep in, um, they're going to be hard-pressed and their quality of life may not even be as good as it was at the shelter. You know, mm-hmm. we have about 2,000 families a year distribute about a million dollars worth of furniture, but inflation is hitting those at the lowest income levels higher than ever before. And it's also affecting folks' propensity to give. So uh, there's just more need and less furniture out there. And and that runs hand-in-hand with housing and housing affordability and a decent quality of life in a stable home. Yeah, Uh, Rob, I I really appreciate you calling, too, and and letting us know about the need for that support and, of course, the work you're doing to try to make sure – that uh, that people have it. It's a great way to end this conversation. Okay, uh, I want to thank Greg Colburn for being here with us. It was really great to have uh, your perspective as well. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks. 
Today's episode of Detroit Today was produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Nate Bender. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Editing and mixing is by Connor Anderson. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Our podcast manager is David Lyons, and our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET Public Radio. If you love the conversations we have on Detroit Today, consider donating to WDET, the public radio station in Detroit that we call home. If you want to be a part of the conversation and call in, you can listen live every day on WDET.org or on the WDET mobile app. Or if you live in Southeast Michigan and still love listening to good old-fashioned radio like me, tune in to 1019 FN.